will keep standing and take your Bibles, if you would do that. And we're going to turn them this morning to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're going to read just four verses this morning. Verses 13 through 16 will be our reading and will be our text this morning. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. Let us hear the word of the Lord. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray as we get ready to look into this. Our Father in heaven, you who have given to us your word, you who have revealed Uh, your nature, your will, uh, the work of your Son. We we pray that as we come to look into this portion of your word, we we pray for your blessing upon uh, he who preaches and we who hear. Uh, May both be filled with your Spirit as we do. And Lord, we pray that through that we would gain knowledge, that we would increase in our love and our joy in regard to you, O God, and we pray that you would bring glory to yourself through this time, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. And you can be seated. Keep your Bibles out, of course. Say that from time to time, but that's a standing uh, invitation, a standing request to, to do that as we look at God's word. This morning, in these four short verses uh, that we're considering this morning, we have combined both the, the, the declaration of a great theological truth and a display of the great love and compassion of Christ. We're in the middle of a little triad of teachings here in the the beginning part of Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus has taught his disciples already uh, about marriage and and divorce. He did that in the previous passage. Now today he's going to teach us something about children and then, well, we'll have to leave it to see how Mark rounds out this little triad of teachings from Christ. Uh, We'll leave that until next week. For today, though, a beautiful uh, episode here in the Gospels, uh, as Mark records it here for us, a beautiful episode in the ministry of our Lord, an episode that takes place, remember, east of the Jordan River in the area of Perea, uh, where Jesus has gone with his disciples as they are making their way down uh, to the south. We don't want to lose sight, of course, again, of the fact that Jesus is in this period of Mark's gospel, in an intensified mode of teaching, teaching his disciples, teaching them valuable lessons as disciples as they journey toward the city of Jerusalem, where praise first and then humiliation and death and then exaltation all await the incarnate Son of God as he approaches the climax of his earthly ministry 
there in and around the city of David. But this morning, we're going to, by God's grace, uh, learn something of the attitude of Jesus toward children and the necessity of being, in a way, like them ourselves. And we'll look into that as we turn to this text. Mark begins this record of this encounter in verse 13, where he says to, the, to, says to us, as he writes, And they were bringing children to him, that is to Jesus, that he might touch them. Stop there. Uh, perhaps you'll remember back in chapter 9, the disciples, remember on the way that they were traveling, that they were arguing and were caught by Jesus arguing among themselves as to which one of them was the greatest. And in teaching them, um, consequent to that, and teaching them how inappropriate that whole line of argumentation among themselves was that Jesus had um, taken a child in the house where they were staying and had put that child in the midst of them. And we read of Jesus using that child uh, there as an object lesson to teach the disciples of the necessity of receiving and caring for and caring about those in the lowest, even the lowest strata of society. That the attitude of a disciple of Christ must be one of humble service and not prideful self-promotion. Well, here again, now children enter the picture, but here it is not Jesus bringing a child uh, into the center of the room, but here the children, we read, are being brought to Jesus, most likely by their parents or or some guardian of, of theirs. We're not told explicitly that, but uh, perhaps it could be uh, nursemaids or some other servant. But again, the parents seem to be the most likely ones. And particularly the way this is phrased in the original uh, and even a bit of an emphasis on the fathers perhaps bringing the children here to, to Jesus. Um, they're bringing these children to him. And the word we should note that's translated here as children is a word that can have a, a pretty wide range of ages. It typically refers to a pretty young child, although it can, and earlier in this gospel, it referred to a, a 12-year-old girl. But generally, the word refers to a very young child. And that is, without doubt, the intention here. Luke, in his parallel account of this, of this uh, episode, explicitly tells us that these are infants that are being brought to Jesus. And that and the fact that down in verse 16 that they are small enough for Jesus to pick up and to hold these children in his arms makes it clear that these are quite young children. And these people, parents probably, who are bringing them to Jesus, Mark says that they are bringing them that he might touch them. Now, there's nothing said about these children being sick or needing a healing or, or needing an exorcism or, uh, or for them to be taught, you know, typical other reasons, uh, being sick or such, typical reasons for Jesus or for seeking out Jesus' touch. We're not told that any of that is the case here. In fact, verse 16 again clarifies for us that these people are bringing these children to Jesus that Jesus might bless them. 
What is desired here is that Jesus would lay his hands on them and, and bless them. Now, what does that exactly mean? Uh, to bless someone literally means to speak well of them, to speak a good word to someone or, or about someone. The word that's used here is the word from which we get the word eulogy, a, a good word to speak well of someone. It comes in the, the language to refer to asking God to look with favor upon someone or to ask God to do good for someone. And that's more the idea that we think of with a blessing, to consecrate a person or a thing with solemn prayer, to ask God's blessing upon a thing or a person. Uh, when Matthew records this episode, uh, he also does all three of the Synoptic Gospels record this, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew records that they bring these children to Jesus specifically that he might lay his hands on them and pray. So that's what is, what is behind this. And in this practice, it has come to sort of carry with it the implication, and we see this still today, the implication that the act of blessing someone itself, usually with touching, itself constitutes a a significant blessing. Now, though that in most cases usually is reflecting something more of a, well, something like a, a folk religion, um, there is nothing magical in the touch of anyone that can convey a blessing, uh, though if it was to be found in anyone, it would certainly be Jesus, whose touch in and of itself is a blessing, and whose touch, of course, is associated with healing and uh, with instantaneous healing and complete healing. And so it's appropriate that he would be, it's most appropriate that uh, he would be the one to bring someone to in order for them to be blessed by him touching them, and as we read over in Matthew, by praying for them. Well, Mark finishes up in verse 13 there by saying this, and the disciples rebuked them. Well, that sounds about right, doesn't it? Not right as in correct or good, but right as in what we might expect. You know, just a short time ago, we, we looked at this a few weeks ago, John came and happily reported to Jesus, you know, Jesus, we, we saw this guy out doing ministry. He was uh, casting out demons. He was... He was for all accounts, doing it properly for the right reasons with the right results. Remember he said he was doing it in your name, Jesus, but, but he wasn't one of us. Uh, but don't worry, Jesus, we, we took care of it. We, the text says we tried to stop him. And you remember what Jesus' response was to that. Don't do that. Um, but that's the way the disciples kind of thought. That wasn't even the first demonstration of the disciples' problems along the lines of, of wanting to, to, to brush people off with, that come with needs. In Mark chapter 6, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, we looked at that. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. And what do they say to do? Should we... You know, do they say, let's feed them? Jesus, can you do something about it? No, they say, send them away to go and to buy themselves something to eat. Uh, in Matthew 15, 
The episode with the, the woman up in Tyre as Jesus ministers to her, the, the episode with the crumbs given to the dogs, that discussion that happens, in that situation too, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, uh, they say, they begged him, Matthew tells us, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. My, what compassion from the disciples here. And here, when these people are bringing these little children to Jesus to be blessed by them, their response is to rebuke them. That is to rebuke the ones who are bringing them. Shoo them away. I can picture someone standing at the door of the house here and just saying, you know, go, just, you know, go away. Now let's, let's do as we should and let's put the best spin on this that we can and say that perhaps they are uh, and, and we'll extend it to all of these episodes that we've seen. Let's say that they are simply guarding Jesus and his time by attempting to restrict access so that Jesus maybe can have a chance to rest. I don't know that that's it, but, but we'll put that spin on it. Uh, especially here, by these people who are bringing children. This is, this is a problem. But children, remember, we talked about this back in uh, when we talked about John uh, bringing this report um, to Jesus. Um, children were considered the lowest class uh, of society. They were relatively seen as unimportant in this culture at this time. And, and we, the disciples, for whatever reason, were, were saying to Jesus, we need to shield Jesus from these kids. And so Mark says that the disciples rebuked them. Again, them probably speaking of those who brought them, not speaking of the the children themselves since they are very young. So that's what they say. That's what they're doing. They're rebuking them. Well, that too ends up being a bad idea for them to do. Because verse 14 says, But when Jesus saw it, That is, when he saw the disciples shooing away these people who were bringing their children, it says that Jesus was mildly irritated at them. No, it doesn't. It says he was moderately miffed at them. Doesn't say that either. He was pretty perturbed, perhaps. Well, no, it's not that either. Mark says that he was indignant. And that is a strong word. Um, We hear of righteous indignation, righteous anger. This is that. This is the only time that this is used of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is angry with his disciples. He is mad at them for what they are doing. In a righteous way, of course, for a righteous reason. But he is indignant with them. Jesus loved people. We see that throughout the the Gospels, even especially children and their parents, so that he took the rebuke of the disciples as an affront and seriously. As in the situation with the man that was casting out demons in the name of Christ, the disciples in doing that are in reality stepping outside of their authority, beyond their knowledge, And they are demonstrating a spirit contrary to that of Christ. It was not their place 
to say whom Jesus would see and whom he would receive and whom he would not receive. We see that Jesus receives all sorts of people all the time, even when he hasn't had rest. But he doesn't turn people away. It's not their place to say whom Jesus would and would not receive. Just as we've learned in the past that it's not our place as well. It's not our place to say such and such a person is worthy of hearing the gospel or such and such a person or a type of person does not deserve or does not need to hear it. And anything that we might say or or do that seems to give that message, that gives that, that visual even, that gives that idea, gives the utmost offense to our Lord. And Jesus here is angry with his disciples. With his disciples as they seek to hinder these children from being brought to Jesus for a blessing. And he says to them, in verse 14, rather, he says, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Don't put anything in their path. Don't stop them. This represents really and shows Jesus' attitude towards children particularly. He never rejects them. He always welcomes them. He always receives them. Remember, even when he was teaching his disciples, he took the the child and, and took him up in his arms and set them in their midst. And so he does the same thing here. He receives the children, and he's indignant with the disciples when they take it on themselves to hinder these children from being brought to Jesus. And now he gives us the reason. And in doing so, he sets up a bit of a, a tension here in this verse that, that needs to be resolved, it needs to be applied, and it will be in the next verse. He'll give us the implication of that. But first, the statement itself, he says in verse 14, we'll read it again, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Why? Disciples, should you not be rebuking those who have brought their children to to be blessed by me and prayed for by me, to be given a blessing by me? Well, it's because, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is, is for people like them. To such, he says, belongs the kingdom of God. Now, in order to understand that, it's a rather curious statement, Let's remind ourselves first of what the kingdom of God is that he's, he's talking about here. Because that's a term that, that has different levels of meaning and it can be confusing sometimes. The term kingdom of God is one of those biblical phrases that is very rich in meaning. In the broadest sense, it simply refers to God's rule over his universe that he has created. It speaks of the realm over which he is sovereign. It speaks of the fact that he is sovereign over it. That realm is the universe. Everything is his. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In another sense, in a narrower sense, particularly in the Old Testament, it refers to that rule of particularly the greater son of King David that was to come over a kingdom that would include Gentiles and Jews and over which the Messiah, the anointed one of God, would reign as prophet 
and priest and king. In the New Testament, we come to, to the, the teaching and the preaching of, of John the Baptist and of Jesus and of the apostles and we learn that the kingdom of God with the coming of Christ has, has broken in on the scene with the coming of the king himself, Jesus Christ, who at the same time is that greater son of David and the eternal son of God. And in the preaching of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, we learn that, that this kingdom is not a political kingdom as the Jews thought in the Old Testament as some of them thought even in the the Gospels here, as we've been looking at from time to time. It's not a political kingdom that the kingdom of God is. It's not a restored Jewish theocracy. But it's a religious, an ethical, a spiritual, moral kingdom. Jesus said in, in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. And in this sense... The kingdom of God is a way to speak of complete salvation. And all of the spiritual, all of the material blessings of that kingdom earned by the work of the king, the conquering warrior king, Jesus Christ, in his life and death. Among those benefits are forgiveness of sins and righteousness and eternal life and the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. All of those things are what's understood by this kingdom of God. But this present aspect of the kingdom of God is not the only one, it's not the final one. Because the kingdom of God in its fullest sense is an eternal kingdom. Um, One that is at one time already among us, we've seen that. We are already its subjects. If you are a Christian, a truster in Jesus Christ, you are a subject of the kingdom of God, a member of the kingdom of God, guided, ruled, protected by Jesus the King. And in this way, and this is probably the basis, the basic concept, the basic sense of, of the concept of the kingdom of God, The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of Christ established and acknowledged in the hearts of his redeemed people. Affected by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, manifested by those gifts and those fruits of the Spirit, given by the Spirit, and functioning within that kingdom. And that's where we live now. That is how we see the kingdom of God presently among us. And that's what Jesus is referring to here when he says to his disciples that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. But for the sake of completeness, let me go on a little bit more because although the kingdom of God is in this sense already among us and each and every Christian are in fact and in truth in that kingdom, full and eternal members of that kingdom, Yet the kingdom of God is also, in a sense, not here yet. Not here fully at this time. Because there is a fuller form, a final form of the kingdom of God, which awaits the return of the king on the last day, when he will come again and he will consummate his kingdom and bring it into its final perfect eternal state after he casts out everything that offends and is evil. Then it will eternally uh, exist as the new heaven and the new earth. 
Jesus says, don't hinder the children who are being brought to me. Why? Because he says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean by that? Does he mean, when he says that to such belong the kingdom of God, does he mean that children, because of their innocence, that they already have a place in the eternal kingdom of God, which would be saying, basically, that they are already saved or that they don't need to be saved. Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't see any heads shaking, but I expect to see lots of heads shaking. Of course he doesn't mean that. The Bible is very clear that all have sinned, that there is none righteous, not even one, and that goes for all of all people. <coughs> the Bible is very clear that in the fall of mankind, that the entire race of man was corrupted, such that every child of Adam receives from Adam, from conception, a fallen, depraved, guilty nature. And he or she carries that with them. So when we speak of children today, and we often do it, we often hear it, of children being innocent, innocent children, we do that only and refer to that only relatively. They are sweet, they are cute little things, but they're also fallen little things. There's no such thing in the evaluation of the law of God as an innocent baby. So Jesus is not saying that, although they are, as children of believers have always been, they are part of the visible manifestation of the kingdom, the church, they are part of that. But notice, and this will help us and get us into this, notice the little phrase in verse 14. He says, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. To such Some translations say, to such as these belong the kingdom of God. And that leads us into verse 15, which is the point of the passage. Jesus says in verse 15, continuing his statement, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It is that God's remarkable, glorious grace is shown in Him giving the kingdom to those who have no claim upon it. It is not the innocence of children, we just talked about that, that it's, the, that's not, it's not that that's the point of connection with what Jesus is teaching here. It is rather the humble, unassuming, trusting way in which a child receives anything that they receive without attempting or even having the concept to assert a right or a demand to what they are given. But they accept what is given. What is necessary, as Jesus says this here in verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Whoever does not receive the the kingdom of God like a child receives things. That's the picture. So what's necessary is not to be a child. It's not even to be childish. Remember, Paul said, I put away childish things. 
but to be like a child in the sense of trusting implicitly the one who gives a gift. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever humbles himself. See, that's the idea, to humble yourself, to be like a child, to be trusting, to be receiving. As a child, even even an infant does in receiving anything, in that way we must receive the kingdom and accept the invitation to enter it as a gift of God's grace. We receive the kingdom of God, that is, our being given a share in the kingdom of God, being brought into it, and being made a citizen in it, full standing. We do that by setting aside any pursuit of significance and, and any pursuit of, of worth according to the world's standards, and we come to God in recognition of our lack of worthiness to enter it. The Bible speaks this way. It says that we are adopted into God's family. We don't earn our way into God's family. We cannot earn our way into it. We cannot leverage our way into the kingdom. There is no other way to become a citizen of God's gracious, glorious kingdom than by adoption into his family and thereby receiving the kingdom as our inheritance as a child of God. Salvation is received... It is obtained by believing the promises of God like a child believes the promises of the good things that come from his parents. And so the kingdom of God may only be entered into by one who knows that he is helpless, that he is small, that he is without claim on the kingdom, without merit to enter the kingdom. But God offers it by grace to be received by faith, grounded in the work of Christ. If a child is unsure of something, the parent explains. And if the child still doesn't understand it, the parent says, trust me. And the child does. And that's what Jesus is saying, that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God in that way, when God says, trust me, him doing it, trusting him, says, whoever doesn't come in that way does not come at all. And then having said that, Jesus, and this is so beautiful here, Jesus turns his attention back to these children who have been brought, that um, they've been brought to be, to be blessed by him. Regardless of the, notwithstanding the attempts of the disciples to discourage it, Uh, Those that still have, and we read there in verse 16 that Jesus took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And the way that that last verse there is structured in the original, it emphasizes that Jesus focused on and completed this, this action. Jesus took time for each child. You know, even if, if we said like we wanted to put the best spin on this, that the disciples were just trying to, to keep, guard Jesus' time, Jesus says, I have time. 
for these children. And he takes time with each one. He took each child in his arms. He laid his hands on each child. And he blessed them. He prayed for them. And as Jesus did to these children, so we, beloved, receive a multitude of blessings as Jesus takes us to himself, takes us in his arms, as it were. And as Paul mentioned in in Ephesians, God has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. Jesus shows that he loved children. He made special time for them. Insisted that they not be excluded. Not be excluded from coming to him. And we should remember that the Lord has a heart towards children and is receiving towards children. Not as outsiders, but as in the church, as part of the covenant community. From the Old Testament right on through to today through circumcision in the Old Testament, through covenant baptism in the New Testament. And today, children, infants, are considered part of God's people. And we are thankful that all of these things have been picked up by the Reformed churches, by the Reformed catechisms. We welcome children. We encourage children, young children, as members of the church. We give them the sign of membership in the covenant community because they are entitled to it. We encourage them. We encourage them to be in the worship service. Why? Because they're part of the congregation. They should be. And by the way, because as members of the worshiping community, the worship service is where they belong. It is the place, it is the place, arguably it is the only place, where they can learn how corporate worship happens. What it looks like, what it means. And that's what should be happening in services. And that's what we want to have happening in here. The young'uns learning being taught, being modeled by their parents and older brothers and sisters as well what it means to be in corporate worship. How to sit quietly. How to stay in their seats. How to learn to sing the songs of Zion with the people of God. Do that, parents. Teach your children to participate in the service. If they're too young to read the songs, to sing along with them, have them stand next to you and hum along. Have them hold a hymnal if they're able. Even turn it to the right page for them. And all children of all ages have a a part here. The goal for the youngest is maybe just to, to sit still and to be quiet and to pay attention to the service. When they're a little older, to sing the songs to bow their heads during prayer, to watch, to see how these things happen. When they can, to start taking notes, to fill out the the children's bulletin. It is pure providence. We were going to be reintroducing those bulletins today anyway. And it's just God's providence that, that we have an example for you now. Parents, talk to your little ones about different aspects of the service after service. 
if they have questions about the service. Why do you do that? There's a young lady in our congregation who regularly comes to me and asks, why do we do that? She's learning. Answer them the questions. If you don't know the answer, say, come at, go ask Pastor Gene. He'll tell you. Other members of the congregation, you in all of this help out where you can. It can be difficult sometimes for, for people, uh, perhaps with, with lots of children, perhaps people coming from a, a different church with different ideas of worship. Maybe this is the first time they've had their children in a worship service. Help them. Remember the charge that's given to you as a congregation when a child is baptized. Let me read it for you in case you had forgotten. It says, As this child is baptized into Christ and becomes a member of this visible church, the whole congregation is obligated to love him or her and to receive him or her as a member of the body of Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body and therefore are members of one another. Christ claims this little child as his own and calls you to receive him in love and commitment. Therefore, you ought to commit yourself before God to assist this child, his parents, in Christian nurture by godly example, prayer, and encouragement in our most precious faith. And so we in the church should, we must, place the same importance, the same emphasis on our children that Christ did and forbid them not. In fact, help them as much as we can to come to Christ and be blessed. And consider this. The world is teaching them from their earliest days. And so the church and those who make up the church, us in the church, we must be equal to the task and teach them the things of God and model those things. If you wait until they are teenagers before you teach them the things of God and the importance of those things, you have, in all likelihood, lost them. So do it now. Do it while they're young. Let us determine that we will not lose one of our covenant children to the enemy. People, if you don't have children, pray for the children of your church. Pray for the parents of the children in your church. And let us all remember, beloved, that if we come into the kingdom of God, we come like a child. In humble, dependent trust in God, we are like an infant, utterly helpless. And without God's grace, we are also utterly hopeless. But God calls us. He invites us to himself. Let us respond in faith. And to that, let us say, amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the children. We thank you for the children that you have given to the parents represented here. We thank you for the children that you have given to this church. And we pray, Lord, that as we seek to see them raised in the, the knowledge of the Lord, that, that you would help us to help them. We pray, Father, that, that we would model for them uh, the, the things that are appropriate for members of your kingdom. And we pray, God, that you would remind us all that as we come to you, we come as children. That we come with no claim on your kingdom, with no 
with nothing to, to buy our way into the kingdom. We come only with things that would keep us out. But we thank you that you, by your grace and through the work of your Son, have opened the way that we can come in. And we thank you that you bring us in in order that you would be glorified. And we pray, God, that you would continue to bless us, bless this church, bless the children of this church, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.